0: So to begin, I think I have to first confess that I've quite shamelessly borrowed the title of this talk from a book by M. Scott Peck, his book, The Road Less Travelled. And I just want to acknowledge and thank him, without his permission, for that (coughs) borrowing But the road less traveled, I can hardly think of a more apt description for what we are endeavoring to do here. You know, to cultivate a path of awakening, to explore what it means to live an awakened life, in many ways it does feel somewhat countercultural. I mean, it's not It's probably quite rare that you turn on the television in a day or pick up a magazine and hear the message that this is a really good day to let go. Mm -hmm. You know, or this is a really fine day to be equanimous or practice generosity or it's an amazing day to be compassionate or mindful. We don't get these messages, we get a lot of other messages, but imagine how it would be if we did turn on our TV or pick up a magazine and, you know, instead of an ad for Brill Cream, heard that there might be some wisdom in simplicity or understanding non-self. In many ways, this path is, I think, not only countercultural. there are times and moments when it actually feels almost counterintuitive. Because we do in our practice and in our lives keep encountering the the habits of our hearts and minds to protect and to defend and to assert ourselves. You know we keep encountering the the habits of restlessness and aversion and craving of fear and contractedness. And wisdom tells us that these tendencies or these habits of mind actually just lead to suffering. But habit, in a way, tells us that this is kind of the normal way to be or that this is the way we are or perhaps the only way we know how to be. Letting go and fearlessness and patience and compassion, they they don't come easily to us. And it's why we're encouraged and why we encourage ourselves in truth to take the road less traveled, to learn how to listen inwardly, to learn how to listen to the voices of wisdom in our own hearts that reach for compassion and freedom that reach for a sense of possibility in a way to act like a Buddha. You know, in the Tibetan tradition there's a saying that when you hear the stories of the great Buddhas and the great yogis of the past and all the trials they had to go through and all the adversity that they met, we imagine that they could meet those trials and adversity because they were great Buddhas and great yogis. And the story says it's not so. It's by acting like great Buddhas that they became so. If the Buddha was a radical, and radical in his teaching, in 2,600 years ago almost, people face the same challenges inwardly as we face in our own lives and hearts. You know, when you read the teachings, when you read the discourses, you hear over and over again of people going to the Buddha and asking what to do with this life that, as Nagarjuna puts it, the life that won't go away. What to do with conflict and affliction, afflicted body and mind. Asking the you know, how, how to meet, how it's possible to meet troublesome people and events how to meet aging and sickness and death. And it has to be said that the Buddha's answer wasn't always just go sit more. You know, that wasn't his kind he didn't have this sort of standard prescription of just go sit more. Instead, there was very much this encouragement to nurture understanding and compassion, to investigate. Um and also very much the encouragement to explore what it means to embody an awakened life. Now the teaching that was offered then was a very coherent teaching. It was a very rational teaching that to know the end of suffering and struggle, we need to be willing to understand and to challenge the forces of craving and clinging and aversion and selfing in our own hearts. In other words, to know the end of suffering, we need to understand the causes of suffering. And then we need to know what it means to align our hearts and our lives with the way things actually are. You know, so in this teaching it, it it's really presenting the possibility that peace is not dependent upon the absence of conflict. If it was, peace would never be possible in our world. But peace is sometimes made possible in the midst of conflict through our willingness to somehow soften the judgments, the arguments, the rage. The teaching was coherent in in encouraging us to understand the wisdom of insecurity, of not leaning upon anything, to learn what it means to live in harmony with the truth of impermanence and all its implications. Teaching us that calmness is not the absence of events, but it is the calming of reactivity. And that freedom doesn't in any way rely upon us having perfect circumstances or a perfect life. But in a way, freedom relies upon us not demanding perfection and to learn what it means to live freely within imperfection. The teaching also suggested that the end of suffering is really not about annihilating life or annihilating the the difficult, but learning what it means to be no longer hostage to the seemingly unquenchable need to have and to become and to maintain Essentially, what, the, what was taught, you know, an understanding when you know when I refer to the Buddha a lot, it's, it's not at all. there's no hidden message here to convert any of you to Buddhism or that you leave a retreat a Buddhist or anything else. But to understand there's a certain kind of timelessness in this teaching and this wisdom, and that the Buddha in truth only means an awakened one. But essentially, the Buddha described this, this encouraged the living of what he called an awakened life that was really manifested through the Eightfold Path. And then this Eightfold Path is incredibly important because it, it's something that is so inclusive, so embracing, because that path, the Eightfold Path, in embraces the journey of inner cultivation. It talks about, you know, wise mindfulness, wise effort, wise understanding, wise concentration, wise intention. But it's also a path that equally embraces how we are off the cushion how we are in the world, how how we are in all of our relationships. It's a path that asks us to look at how it is that we are touching the world with our speech and with our acts and with our choices. Now, I think, you know, sometimes I think that Westerners are a little bit prone to kind of make hierarchies within the path. And one of the hierarchies that is made is to think that when you're on the cushion, you're doing the real practice and everything else is secondary or less important or less significant. Um, Now, certainly I would be the last person (laughs) to minimize the value of the time on the cushion you know and heaven knows we all know we are so much uh, benefit from the indescribable value of cultivating inner calm and mindfulness the, the stillness of being the clarity of attentiveness and heaven knows we all need and are, and benefit from the tremendous insights and depth that is born of that stillness but if our practice if we if our sense of the practice is that it begins and ends with the cushion then it's not the whole of the eightfold path it will be it, it is not complete and awake, way, you know, part of the practice certainly is the sitting, the walking, everything we do here, you know, the schedule, the silence, the, the precepts, the ethical guidelines. All of this is so much the kind of container in, in which we can blossom, in which we can open. And in many ways, the schedule and the techniques and the forms of meditation are tremendous allies, really almost indispensable allies. And in many ways they describe the kind of craft of meditation. And there's also the art of meditation, the art of investigating, the art of really looking at what all these forms are mirroring, how we keep seeing ourselves reflected in our responses to the schedule, our reactions, our responses to each other, our our reactions to sights and sounds, that quality of, of kind of a sort of divine curiosity, a quality of such interest and investigation, it's really about everything matters, everything matters, and you know, it's almost how I would describe mindfulness. There's really an attitude that everything matters. How we are at the notice board. How we are with our roommates. How we are in the lunch line. We keep seeing ourselves being mirrored moment to moment. And what do we see? We start to begin to see what the nature of struggle or suffering is and how it's caused. And we also begin to sense the nature of peace and its cause, the nature of calmness and its cause. And I think this is something really dearly important to all of us. I mean, certainly we we aspire to develop that inner serenity and quietude, kindness, compassion. But we also aspire probably to bring this off the cushion and into our life. Most of us are not about to retire to a cave. And so the the question, I think the question probably as teachers that we get asked more than any other question, is how do we do this outside of retreat? And I think it's a very important question. And I I think it's a question to embrace with passion and curiosity, but to also to bring that parallel into what we're doing here. How do we do this with our eyes open, off the cushion? Not only how we do it with our eyes closed and on the cushion. It's, It's an important question to embrace with that kind of passion, certainly not with despair or despondency. You know, the truth is that You know, we we could prescribe endless formulas about how to practice. And you know we're going to spend all week doing that? (laughs) I have to confess. We'll be be doing that endlessly. You know, we'll be prescribing all kinds of suggestions and advice and encouragement. But you know, it's only meaningful if we ourselves are, are truly dedicated and interested and passionate. To really embrace a path of awakening. To utilize the forms, but also to to nurture that inner commitment. Now the Buddha didn't just teach a renunciate lifestyle. His teaching was spiritual, but it was also political, it was social, it was relational. And I suspect if it was alive today, it would also be environmental. At the time of the Buddha, he challenged the institutional suffering of the caste system that oppressed so many. He challenged the political systems, endlessly speaking about wise and compassionate governance. And he spoke a lot about relational practice, the culture and the cultivation of of ethics and kindness and compassion to form the ground of wise and caring and respectful relationships. He really encouraged a way of being in which we could feel ourselves to be a conscious participant in life and to really know our interconnectedness and our interdependence. So having already ripped the title off from someone else, I'm now about to rip off one of Rob's stories. So you can drop this one from your closing talk. (laughs) In which he talks about a a friend of his who uh, made the transition from being a Zen monk to living in the center of Manhattan and whose door opened directly onto a very, very busy street. And on the inside of the door he hung a sign saying, zendo. So when he opened the door, he was going out into his meditation room or into his zendo. And I think our challenge in our path is, is to know what it means to be in the zendo, to mean, know what it means to be in the cave, in the meditation center, but also know what it means to go out into our meditation center out into our our zenda to explore in a way what it means to be a kind of engaged renunciate. And really, moment to moment, what it means to walk that road less traveled. Now, this is really what we're trying to do here, but something you may notice, and I, I know I used to do this all the time on the retreats, you know, it's kind of like I'd come into a retreat which would be a sort of new or unfamiliar territory for me, and and I'd immediately create new retreat habits, you know, like my walking path and, you know, Heaven forbid anybody should walk on my walking path. You know, or my cushion, or you know, my seat in the dining room. You know, or you know, my own schedule. And I, it took a while to figure out I was doing exactly the same thing. You know, to really notice how we we kind of have this. This sort of paradoxical thing, you know, that we have this longing for the unfamiliar. And the moment we get it, we try and make it familiar. Trying to make our own uh, routines, a sense of safety, a secure world. And I think for each of us, from the moment that we open our eyes in the morning to the moment that we, close our eyes at night. In truth, all of us are meeting a very complex world of events and peoples and situations. We don't live in isolation, but we live in this constant process of engagement. And the very nature of that engagement is that each of us, every day of our lives, are asked to make innumerable choices. Choices from the mundane to the mysterious. You know, what do I eat for breakfast? I mean, when was the last time you went into a Starbucks? What kind of coffee would you like? I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. The, you know, the level of choice. It, 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 you could stand there all day, you know, in uncertainty and, and indecision. Think about when you go to work on a daily basis, the choices you make. And, of course, there are many, many bigger choices we are faced with in our lives about relationships, about life directions, about what we give our time and our attention to. And it can feel bewildering. You know, and one, I think, one response to the seeming insecurity of living and the many choices we're asked to make is, one response is to become very rigid. To try to solve the complexity of our lives by equally complex rules of engagement, you know, rights and wrongs and the way things should be and try to control and trying to pin things down. And we do that in order to, in a way, to solve a kind of inner confusion or panic at at the insecurity, the uncertainty we all face. I mean, it's obviously not a very helpful response, control. Because, essentially, because life is so rarely cooperative and it just stays unpredictable. And another response to this kind of bewildering array of choices and insecurity is actually to kind of give up, to become quite fragmented or disorganized. Sometimes we even call that spontaneity. <laughs> but sometimes all we're doing is swimming in a kind of sea of of indecision, uncertainty. I think another response, and perhaps to acknowledge the single most important choice that we ever any of us can ever make in our lives, is to choose to cultivate an ever deeper mindfulness. An ever deeper awareness. An ever deeper sense of being conscious in our lives. Acknowledging that our consciousness is really the forerunner of all things. All our choices. So what else is more valuable than that to take care of? What else could possibly be more important the quality of our consciousness, to really attend to, to really nurture. I mean, mindfulness awareness doesn't necessarily make choices easier in truth. The more mindful we are, in a way, more multiple choices appear to us. But perhaps this caring for the quality of our consciousness allows us to begin to make wise choices, intentional choices, guided by kindness and compassion. You know, I often see this path as being this kind of, sort of very natural movement from one kind of choicelessness to wise choice to another kind of choicelessness altogether. Now, the first kind of choicelessness, I think, is often where we all begin on the path, and it can be very familiar in our lives. It's the choicelessness of being pushed through life by impulse and reaction. It's that kind of choices, and it feels like we don't have any choices. It's going to get pushed through life by impulse and reaction. It's like a bug lands on it, and we are swatting it so fast, it's like it doesn't even go through a level of awareness, does it? It's just reactivity. Or, you know, someone speaks to us harshly, and we find ourselves immediately propelled into these kind of enraged responses and reactions. Or there's an intimation of boredom. And before we even acknowledge it as being boredom, you know, we've switched on our phone or, or in meditation centers it usually means you, you kind of spend a lot of time frequenting the tea urn. <laughs> and you're just there. You know, you just say You don't even know how you got there. You weren't thirsty. You know, you certainly didn't. You're just there. And you know, it is ter- it's a pathetic thing, isn't it? When that's the most exciting moment of our day. <laughs> you know, it's what's happening at the tea. We don't even know how we got there. It's so pushed. Now, what is the consciousness that is preceding these impulses and reactions? Huh? What is that consciousness? What's really going on there? as the ground for those impulses and reactions. Sometimes we describe it as a kind of freedom. You know, I'm just doing what I want. You know, I'm just doing what I feel like. Oh, that's the big one. I'm doing what I feel like. And we describe that as a kind of freedom. But is it freedom? Or is it a life essentially being governed by, by Mara, by the forces of fear and anger and confusion? Now, the path of mindfulness is planted and grows in this world of impulse. That's where we plant the seeds of mindfulness, in this world of impulse and reactivity. Committing ourselves to ethics and to kindness, learning what means to pause before we speak, before we act, learning to really be mindful of the kind of state of our mind in which these impulses and reactions are embodied. It's really learning that we can make wise choices. You know, we start to move with mindfulness from that place of choicelessness to wise choices. We begin to sense when it's important to speak or to be silent when to act or to be still, when to move or when to practice restraint, when to swim against the tide. And I think it's just the small taste of what I referred to last night when the Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta to abide independent, not governed by anything. So we can see that blind choicelessness is really, in a way, rooted in in kind of um, impulsiveness and reactivity. So what does wise choice draw upon? I think it draws upon one very simple chord of wisdom. Of really being aware moment to moment of what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. It's the bottom line. Wise choice also does draw upon ethics and patience and tolerance and generosity. You know, practices and applications which can feel awkward at first, but they do bear fruit. And you know, wise choice leads to more wise choice. Just like impulse leads to more impulse. So what feels awkward at first starts to be much more naturalized, and it's because we see the benefits. The more intentional we can be in our life, the less do we suffer the residues, the leftovers of guilt and regret and shame. The less do we suffer the residues of self-judgment or judgment of others. In fact, wise choice really begins to calm down the mind, make us less anxious. You know, one of the ways that the Buddha described freedom was a heart and life that is without residues, without these lingering remains, these unfinished <coughs> songs. A life of impulsiveness and reactivity tends to leave a lot of those residues in the form of, if only I had done this or hadn't done this, or I wish I had done this or hadn't done this, or regret or guilt. I think impulsive, being governed by impulse and reactivity, actually creates a lot of unfinished symphonies, as they're called. Unfinished symphonies. So cultivating wise choice does take effort and intention, but then it becomes almost natural, and it begins to turn into another quality of choicelessness. We're really, we're moving from something being kind of second nature, you know, the practice of kindness or ethics or understanding, to it being first nature, the natural embodiment of of. Patience, of kindness, of clarity embodied in all our words and acts and thoughts. This is not easy. This is a path of a lifetime. It's a path of a lifetime. I think, and in this path, all of us are asked to really honestly question ourselves, question in ourselves. What is it that helps us to be more aware, more connected, more present? And what is it that makes us more unconscious and disconnected? And in many ways, we are the only ones who can answer that question. No one can do that for us. I think when life is difficult, we are prone to make choices and quite often unconscious choices to flee and to disconnect with aversion and with anxiety. You know, historically in the time of the Buddha, people had very, very difficult lives. You know, where the, just the basics of food and shelter and medicine were daily issues. You know, in my own sense, it is, it is a very difficulty of their lives at that time that led to the creation of this kind of spiritual ethos where life was regarded as a problem or an obstacle to avoid or to shun or to transcend. And after his awakening, the the Buddha discovered a path of, of understanding really kind of rooted in the classroom of life, of body, of mind, of feeling, and everything that life brings and when he after he'd first seen this so clearly that it was possible to understand suffering and its causes and the end of suffering in this life when he really saw that you know he went back to the the guys he'd been practicing with his other ascetics that he'd been starving and abusing himself with And, you know, he he started to tell them about, you know, this grand insight. And basically they they turned their back on him. They turned their back on him. It was almost like a heretical teaching to even consider that possibility that suffering and the causes of suffering and the end of suffering could be found in this life. Because it was a total reversal of that whole kind of attitude of the need to transcend, to get out of. Now, this is, I think, really what the Buddha taught. He didn't abandon transcendence. But he didn't talk about transcending life. He talked about the transcendence of ignorance and suffering. Which is very, very different about the transcendence of ignorance of suffering. Now I think that, that that reaction of aversion and flight to the difficulties it it's so you know it's very easy to understand. You know, a couple of years ago when I taught in Cuba, where people's lives were so just so hard, you know, I was so interested to see that when I was teaching there it took me a while to get it that mostly what people wanted from me was to find some neat technique that was going to get them into some blissful, out-of-body experience. They actually didn't want to, you know, insight practice, you know, be here. But, you know, then I, I talked to colleagues I like who teach in prisons, and they said it's a very, very similar reaction that when they go into prisons to teach mindfulness are often met with this sense of, I don't want to be here. Look at my life. Look at how my life is every day. Why would I want to be present? You know, why would anybody want to be present? I think these are very extreme examples, you know, of how difficulty really propels us into this Aversion, disconnection mode, but I think we see it also in similar ways, perhaps in our own lives. I mean, aversion and fear are the most insistent and powerful and proximate causes, unconscious causes of disconnection and flight. They are amongst the primary emotional forces that propel us into the unconscious reactions of and impulses of our lives. Aversion and fear. Now, in truth, aversion and fear, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, they're emotions we can meet on a pretty much daily basis, can't we? I mean, you know, sometimes it's little irritations, you know. It's still aversion. You know, sometimes it's a little worry, it's still anxiety. We can meet it on an almost daily basis. It's almost as if anxiety can be like a kind of undercurrent that ripples through our lives. And you know where it originates? It originates in the simple reality that we are all fragile and dependent beings. Anxiety it seems i think it's almost like hardwired into our system and in some ways it's it's kind of like a like anxiety's part of our primitive brain you know it, you know centuries ago that anxiety used to you know lead us to stay in our caves at night you know rather than venturing out and being eaten by wild animals you know and there's that part of i, I think our our primitive bank brain that still operates, and there's a kind of wisdom in it, isn't it? I mean, we're careful when we walk at night or we get out of the way of a car. You know, there's, there's a part that is there quite usefully to protect our life and well-being. Keep us out of danger. But it's a kind of caution, I think, that doesn't actually inhibit our freedom and well-being. It serves to protect And it doesn't actually lead us to disconnect, that kind of caution. But the kind of anxiety that does lead us to disconnect, I think, is not of this order. Instead, it's almost like an existential um, anxiety that becomes the lens through which we see and listen and relate. I mean, anxiety can lead us to censor our thoughts and words and acts for fear of that they might lead to negative feedback. Anxiety leads us to avoid countless situations and events in life for fear of what might happen. Anxiety can inhibit our capacity to embody mindfulness, to stop us from taking the step from mindfulness into wise action. Anxiety can make us doubt ourselves. And it really interrupts that dialogue that needs to happen between wise mindfulness and wise action. Think of a lot of situations in, in life. I mean, just one a couple of weeks ago, and this is, you know, like a little situation. I'm sure you all meet situations like this daily. Okay, So I'm on the train going from Totnes to London. This is a train that's come from Penzance. I don't know if you've ever been there, but, you know, it takes like another two and a half hours to get to Penzance. It's only like 100 miles. I don't know what that train does. Anyway, here, here's the situation. I'm in this quiet car. Now, many of you know about these quiet quiet cars and trains, right? They're supposed to be quiet cars or not, right? I mean, and most people just ignore it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but it's supposed to be. That's, you know, that's one of those things. That's how life is supposed to be. This is supposed to be a quiet car. Next to the quiet car is a young mother with two young boys. She's obviously at the end of her tether. You know, the kids are about seven, four years old. So what does she do? She sends them to play in the quiet car. I mean, these kids are screaming, right? They're screaming. So, okay, here's the situation, you know. So people, you could feel the tension levels rising, you know, with the screams. So some people get up and they barricade the door with suitcases. So the kids can't get into the quiet car. So... (laughs) up comes the mom, you know, I mean, you know what moms are like when their kids are kind of undercut. She starts shouting at all these people who are barricading the door. This whole thing just completely escalates into this madness. Now, everybody's suffering, you know. The kids are suffering, the mom's suffering, and these people in the quiet car are suffering. There is no easy way out. A better way out would be to acknowledge the suffering, at least there. There might be some ground to communicate. But when there's not that mindfulness, what is it going to blame? It goes straight into blame. You know, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Not it's, it's your fault. It's your fault. The truth is, this is a situation of tremendous suffering. How many times do we see, you know, perhaps people we love engaged in self-destructive behavior? What do we do with it? How do we respond? How many times do we see ourselves falling into cycles of habit or reactivity that we know so clearly from our own experience only lead to more suffering? It's not always, this path is not just about being mindful. It's about how mindfulness translates into wise action. And often what really impedes us in that is anxiety and aversion because that just takes us to blame or trying to control. Now in truth, we can be anxious and afraid of so many things, you know, rejection, disappointment, being judged, afraid of getting sick, afraid of failure, afraid of the future. It's like Oscar Wilde said, the most terrible things in my life never actually happened. <laughs> but we've rehearsed them so many times. We're ready for when they do. It often feels, I think, like fear and dread are just kind of lurking beneath the surface of, awa- of awareness rising and surging through our consciousness at the slightest intimation, not even of danger, but even of discomfort. To walk the road more traveled, to walk the road more traveled, is to have, is to translate anxiety into aversion and disconnection. I mean, in reality, I think, you know, we are basically pain and discomfort-avoiding beings. And it's certainly not to suggest that we should go looking for pain. Lord knows, life brings us sufficient already. But to acknowledge that suffering in truth is knitted into the reality of all life, of any being who is born, who ages, who experiences illness, and who will eventually die. That some degree of pain and struggle is to into the existence of any being who lives in this unpredictable, uncontrollable world. I mean, surely we all have our own measure of joy and happiness in this life something to be delighted in. But in truth also, we all have our own measure of loss and pain and discomfort. seems to me that suffering is a parent that has two children. One is aversion and the other is compassion. to cultivate, to nurture that child of compassion, of tolerance and forbearance, of forgiveness and equanimity. This is the road less traveled. When aversion rules, we panic and flee and flinch in the face of discomfort. And our world and our sense of possibility gets a little bit smaller with each flight. When wisdom and compassion rule, we learn what it means to remain steadfast and present, to know when pain and sorrow just asks us of us this, this simple willingness to be still and to listen and to receive. And when pain and sorrow asks us to really challenge the causes of suffering, and to say no to the cause of suffering, but above all, to stay present and connected. It's so important to see that aversion and anxiety are reactions that when they are well-practiced, they turn into habit. And habit doesn't co- e- happily coexist with mindfulness. Anxiety is rooted in the longing not to be hurt and not to suffer. But in a way, the translation of anxiety and aversion is saying, actually, that we don't want to be interdependent, which we are, which we are. These powerful emotions of aversion, anxiety, and truth run through all the afflictive emotions of rage and jealousy and resentment. It's suffering, but anxiety doesn't protect us. Instead, it layers more suffering upon suffering. I think it was was Freud who said that 25% of suffering in this life is unavoidable. And the other 75% is born of trying to avoid the first 25%. (laughs) And that's what anxiety is doing to us all the time, isn't it? Now the road less traveled, I think, is to deeply understand the truth that anxiety is hinting at. Anxiety is hinting at a truth that there is uncertainty in this constantly changing life that on, the only thing that ever keeps anything fixed for more, more than a moment is our view about it. The truth that we are interdependent, contingent, interrelated beings, interwoven with countless other beings in this world through every breath we take, every drink of water we drink, every morsel of food we air, we, we eat, we are interwoven with countless other beings in this life. We are, in truth, not and never were separate. We never were and never will be able to control the changing events of this life. This is a truth we're asked to absorb and understand. It, it can It's not terrifying or terrible. In truth, it, it's really pretty awesome. It's really pretty awesome and pretty mysterious. And there's a great... Peace in understanding those truths, of understanding what it knows to be fearless, not that fear never arises, but that we're not governed by it. And that, that sense of a great peace is not a destination, but really a moment-to-moment practice. That each time we can calm and restrain the aversion that's born of anxiety, we take a step on the road less traveled. That when we can look anxiety in the eye, just as the Buddha did, and say, I know you, we're taking a step on the road less traveled. That each time that we can really be willing to explore the landscape of discomfort rather than flee, we're taking a step on the road less traveled. That when we can find the courage to rest in the truth of uncertainty, the truth of not knowing even what the next moment will bring, we make just a little bit more space in our life, in our hearts, and we take a step on the road less traveled. In a way, this is a very simple path because it is all always about where we are. I'd like to end with just a short piece by Ajahn Chah. He said, Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our our entire path. And the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the truths will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging to love and hate. Just rest with the things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing. Resist nothing. Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques to develop samadhi and many kinds of vipassana. But it all comes back to this. Just let it all be. Step over here where it's cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? He said, Do you dare? we okay, take just a couple of moments quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit slash donate.